welcome to Checkpoint Now, the podcast at the intersection of immunotherapy and toxicities. This is your host, Dr. Afreen Sharif, endocrinologist, assistant professor of medicine, and an associate director at the Center of Cancer Immunotherapy at Duke Cancer Institute. I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Dr. Tian Zhang. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Tian Zhang, a genturinary medical oncologist and assistant professor of medicine. We both practice at Duke University Hospital. Before we begin today's discussion, just a reminder that the content discussed in this podcast is not a substitute for direct professional medical care and diagnosis. The opinions expressed here represent our own. Today, we're really excited to have a stellar group of nephrologists, colleagues, and toxicity experts from Duke. First, we have Dr. Matt Sparks, who wears many hats. He's a nephrologist and assistant professor of medicine, the associate program director for the Nephrology Fellowship at Duke, and also a well-known online celebrity nephrologist, and also the program director for the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship and co-creator of Nef Madness. We also want to add here that Matt has been an advisor to us for our own podcast, and we've learned so much from this experience. Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us today. It's certainly such a great deal to have you here and to be part of our podcast that you helped create. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be on the program and a huge fan of Checkpoint Now and everything that you guys are doing to spread the word about toxicity from Checkpoint inhibitors. Great to have you on the podcast, Matt. I would also like to introduce our second guest expert, Dr. David Ortiz-Mello, who is a nephrologist and assistant professor of medicine at Duke. David has created and directs the Oncodenephrology Clinic at Duke and has a keen interest in immune-mediated renal toxicities. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Tian and Afrin for the kind invitation. Uh, I am thrilled to be here with you and excited about this project, excited to talk about one of the Oncodenephrology areas that I feel very, very passionate about. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, David. David, can you share with us how you got interested in Oncodenephrology? Absolutely. As a clinical fellow, I was fascinated by the challenging and huge variability of kidney pathologies that we saw in patients with cancer. Some of the most challenging cases, actually, that I remember as a fellow were precisely oncology patients. Around the same time, a new subspecialty in nephrology was born, and it was onconephrology. So as an onconephrologist, I see patients with history of cancer that develop any form of kidney, blood pressure, or electrolyte issues, either due to cancer itself or from surgical treatments or due to toxicities from medical therapies, including conventional chemo, target therapies, or immunotherapy. I've been doing this since 2014, and this has been truly the joy of my professional career. Thanks, David, for those insights. Um, how often do we see these immune-mediated nephritis in, in our populations with cancer treated with immunotherapies? Well, renal toxicities um, from checkpoint inhibitors, which mostly are basically AKIs, is not as common as other extrarenal IRAEs. There are a few meta-analyses that look into this. They look into phase two and phase three clinical trials. The um, estimated the incident of uh, checkpoint inhibitors AKI was about 2 to 3%. Uh, now, the incidence is higher in those patients receiving combination therapy. It's, uh, it's estimated about 5%. In the real world, though, uh, it might be a little bit higher, um, mostly because it's still underdiagnosed. And the challenge that we have is that we do not have a unifying definition of what is immune checkpoint inhibitor associated AKI. 
we have always struggled actually as a field to come together and have an unifying definition of what it's AKI. Some studies define AKI based on a change in serum creatinine uh, based from upper limit of normal. Others are more specific and compare relative changes of creatinine based on patient's baseline. And then AKI is relatively common in patients with cancer, and we do not necessarily confirm the direct cause of the kidney injury, especially when it's a very mild uh, change in creatinine. So that's the real challenge to to give, give a good estimate of what the real incidence is. That's very interesting, David. Thanks so much for sharing that. Now, um, I'm going to direct the next question to Matt. Um, Matt, do you know if, uh, if these effects are drug specific and even sometimes related to the type of cancer? That's a good question. And I think uh, we're still struggling with trying to understand which ones are more likely to cause AKI. And specifically, we're talking about the most common etiology is tubular interstitial nephritis, which is what's been described the most. And they, they uh, appear over a wide uh, range of different malignancies. And so it appears, though, that it, it is likely not associated with the type of malignancy, but the, the drug itself. David, do you know about the differences between the, the classes or different actual drugs for targeting PD-1 or CTLA-4? So, no, so there's, I don't think it's a, it's a, I think it's a class effect. And like Matt was saying, it's mostly associated with inflammation in the, in the tumor interstitial space of the kidneys. And, and we can see that regardless of what type of cancer the patient has. But one thing that is the, uh, interesting to point out is that it is more often associated with individuals that are on uh, proton pump inhibitors, unknown why that association exists and whether or not it's a real association because proton pump inhibitors in their own accord can cause uh, tubular interstitial nephritis. The other thing to, to point out is that depending on where the inflammation occurs, you can see different toxicities. For instance, uh, Fanconi's syndrome has been seen in patients that have uh, more proximal tubule sort of uh, toxicity or inflammation, where you have loss of phosphate, you have loss of, of a lot of different things that the proximal tubule uh, is there to reclaim. You can also see distal renal tubular acidosis uh, in individuals that might um, have inflammation and in, in other a- aspects of their kidney. And so distal renal tubular acidosis, although very, very rare, in fact, there's only been five case reports uh, in the literature, but I think it does occur more often than just five case reports, just all that's been reported. So uh, to answer your question, one, it doesn't appear to be uh, related to the cancer that the patient has. And two, any of the uh, drugs that block this pathway can cause kidney injury. That's really helpful, Matt. Um, David, any other insights on the, these mechanisms of uh, injury to the kidney? You know, unfortunately, the exact mechanism of how uh, ICPI AKI or checkpoint inhibitor associated AKI happens, we don't really understand it. Uh, similar to other organs or other extra renal IREs, we suspect that the checkpoint inhibitor activates some um, antigen specific T cells against self antigens, and that creates loss of self tolerance and then autoimmunity. That's what we suspect. And, and we also suspect that that this antigen that the T cells are reacting to is likely located in the tubular cells. And, and this is based on the fact that most of the manifestations that we see with, within the kidney, it's compartmentalized in that, in that area, the tubular interstitial space. But the, but the antigen is not known. It has not been discovered either. And to Matt's point, uh, there's also this strong association of uh, a, 
AKI, when you use checkpoint inhibitors in patients that are taking PPIs. And it is postulated that the PPI by itself acts as an antigen or it can uh, attach to the tubules and act as an aptin. And that in itself primes some T cells that eventually they, they can be reactivated when you are on checkpoint inhibitors and attack the, the, the kidney in that, in that way. But overall, the, the details of how this happens um, is not entirely understood. And, and one of the things that, that will help us understand the mechanism is to figure out which patients are actually going to respond to steroid therapies. Because when you look at AIN or acute interstitial nephritis in general, this can happen with any drugs. This can happen in, in some other diseases. And yet, not all the AIN, drug-induced AIN responds to steroids the way that the, the AIN from checkpoint inhibitors does. Those are really good insights, David. Um, in the past year, uh, you've also published within a multi-center collaborative effort um, about acute kidney injury for patients treated with checkpoint inhibitors. Can you share with us what you've learned from that population and generally how patients present? Sure. I was, I was really fortunate to collaborate with a very bright group of oncologists and onconephrologists who really came together to answer an important question regarding what are the clinical features of checkpoint inhibitor AKI. This, this amazing project was initiated by Dr. David Leaf at MGH. And under his leadership, along with Franco, Tassar, Shruti Gupta, and others, it was really impressive what they accomplished. They, they were able to put together 18 academic centers and which allowed us to collect data on 138 patients. Now, the group over the time has evolved. Now involves, I believe, 40 academic centers now. Over 500 patients have been enrolled. Um, and this is by far the largest cohort of uh, ICPI AKI uh, to date. And what we have learned so far from that initial multicenter study is three things. Number one, I think that the most common uh, a histopathological lesion that we see in kidney biopsies of patients with AKI from checkpoint inhibitors is, like Matt was saying, acute tubular interstitial nephritis. Uh, actually, in our cohort, we had about 60 patients with diagnosis, biopsy-proven diagnosis of AIN. And of these, 93% uh, were consistent with the pathological lesion. And, and this is very consistent with other uh, literature. Uh, number two, when it comes to risk factors, we already mentioned that PPI is a strong predictor of development of AKI. But also we found that if you have a lower GFR or lower kidney function at baseline, that also increases the chances that you would develop AKI, as well as those patients that are treated with combination therapy uh, of for checkpoint inhibitors. And then finally, I think this is very important that clinically, um, checkpoint inhibitor-associated AKI can present with mild proteinuria, pyuria, WBC cast. You can have patients with history of other uh, extrarenal IREs. But even though that sounds like it's a strong support for the diagnosis of AIN, sometimes it's not necessarily the case. And, and, and what we find is that these clinical features, uh, while suggestive, they're not sensitive or specific enough. Well, that's very interesting data, David, especially the um, the collaborative effort to put together so many different institutions. Now, what kind of lab abnormalities should raise concern for immune-mediated toxicities? For example, um, you know, going back to the basics, I'm going to ask Matt this question. How can we differentiate between tubular interstitial nephritis and glomerulonephritis? Well, that's a good question and something that we uh, try to establish, and, and not just with immune checkpoint inhibitors, but something we've been struggling with 
trying to understand uh, just in general. Uh, I'm a big believer in urine microscopy, and that's one way that you can potentially identify someone with a glomerular lesion. For instance, if they have RBC casts or dysmorphic RBCs in their urine sediment. However, that is still not a really great test, and you're going to miss a lot of GNs if you're relying solely on that. So outside of the clinical history, which I think is really important here, it's important to have a baseline set of labs and urine studies. That's very, very helpful. The urine sediment is important. As David mentioned, you can have WBCs in the urine, WC casts. The presence of eosinophils in the urine has pretty much been debunked now as a very sensitive test for tubular interstitial nephritis. And so we pretty much have abandoned even ordering that study. And, and so oftentimes a biopsy is needed uh, to establish the diagnosis. But I, I would say that it's not 100% of the time needed. And there's oftentimes challenging clinical scenarios. For instance, patients might have thrombocytopenia or coagulopathy and making it very challenging to do a biopsy. In those cases, going with the clinical history, the recent, or sometimes they can be on immune checkpoint inhibitors for a very long time and develop it, uh, develop uh, kidney um, injury from it. Uh, you might have to make a clinical decision to treat the individual with steroids empirically. That's so helpful to to understand the, and and try to differentiate and and look at the urine sediment, um, Matt. Um, we're often faced with this problem in our ongoing trials of defining true immune mediated nephritis. Is proteinuria enough to indicate immune mediated nephritis? We look for more of an active cellular sediment. Yeah, proteinuria is probably not going to be specific enough for the tubule interstitial injury if that's what you're looking at because. These patients have a lot going on, but you can have proteinuria as well. So unfortunately, uh, that might not be the best indicator uh, for it. But as David mentioned in the largest case series that was published uh, on, on this, uh, majority of these patients will have acute tubular uh, or acute interstitial nephritis, and those individuals will do well with uh, steroids. However, um, if you have acute tubular injury, uh, you, you won't. So uh, in in my use, uh, proteinuria has not been a very good test to distinguish the two. David, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that the presence or absence of proteinuria is not enough to indicate yeah. uh, nephritis. Similarly, the presence or absence of steripiuria or WBC-CAS, and 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 that is that is the problem. Now we can argue that if ninety plus percent of the patients present with AIN, then we should probably just presume that it's AIN and treat that. The problem with that is that we know, and we probably are underestimating this, but we know that there are other forms of injuries associated with checkpoint inhibitors that are not immune-related. There's reports of a lot of tubular toxicity uh, or tubular injury, rather. There's a few cases of glomerular processes like uh, TMAs or that's thrombotic microangiopathy. Or, or even nephrotic syndrome from membranos or, or things like that, even ANCOR, good pastures, IgA. So there, there's a plethora of, of, of presentations that can happen. Now, are they the most common? Not. But you don't want to miss those. And, 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 and having a systematic approach to make sure that you, you know, look at the microscopic exam, like Matt said, and, and the other parameters, clinically, blood pressure, how, what's the rate of increase of the creatinine, 
What is the you're not doing? Those things can sway you one way or another to think, yes, I'm going to have to think outside the box and proceed with a kidney biopsy versus, no, I feel comfortable calling this checkpoint inhibitor AKI and proceed with steroids. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think don't put your blinders on when you have a patient with AKI and tubular interstitial injury and so and think that's what they have. And so one approach would be definitely check proteinuria. If they have a ton, like 12 grams, then we really need to start thinking about other things that might not be uh, just AIN. And, and so that's where I would say, keep your differential broad, make sure you do the, just the standard protocol workup for an individual and not just classify them as having one entity. Interesting. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost like I'm going back to nephrology lectures. Um, this is great. And since we're on this uh, topic of diagnostic challenges, what do you think is the role for a biopsy in these situations? Um, when would you consider that? I think that the biopsy, we underestimate the role of a biopsy a lot in nephrology. We're, we're always afraid to, to stick a needle in someone's back because of fear of complications, which is understandable. I would say that the, the role of the biopsy is key to determine which patients you want to um, treat with steroids which patient you want to stop the, the, the checkpoint inhibitor, and to answer the future question, which patient can I safely restart or rechallenge with check, checkpoint inhibitors? And this has created a huge debate, by the way, in onconephrology, whether you need to biopsy or not. You can argue, like I said, if the vast majority of patients are AIN, why bother with a biopsy? Most of them will respond to steroids and just empirically treat. The, the problem with that is that you're exposing uh, patients to high doses of steroids for a long period of time. So this is not just 20 milligrams of prednisone for three days. This is uh, sometimes IV solumedrol for three days followed by, by one milligram per kick of prednisone for months. So, so that, there's that. Uh, the other thing is you want to make sure that if the patient does not respond to steroids, you have an answer. Because if you didn't biopsy them and treat them with steroids and they didn't respond, well, guess what? You're going to have to get some tissue to figure out what, what caused the, the patient not to respond rather than to claim it always oh, an AIN resistant and steroids. The counterpart to all this of why people will favor for a kidney biopsy is precisely because you have different manifestations for AK in this setting. It's not just AIN, although it's the most common, you can have um, some tubular injury. And if it's a tubular injury, which is not T-cell mediated, there's no role for steroids. You just sit tight, wait, and, 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 and often the creatinine will improve. And guess what? This patient, I would feel very comfortable re-challenging uh, in the future because I know it is not an immune-related. So that being said, what I usually do when the patients come to me, um, and that is the question at hand, um, I look for any indications for biopsy from the get-go. Uh, do you have microscopic hematuria? Do you have hypertension out of control from compared to what it was before? Um, do you have nephrotic range proteinuria, which is not typical for AIN? So, or any, any, any serologist, ANCA, of course, low complement. So if something is there, by all means, I will just go ahead and biopsy. If I see that it's all suggested of AIN, you know, the patient had a checkbook inhibitors, and at the same time, I'm like, oh, I don't want to biopsy you because you have an RCC and you only have one kidney. Or you're, like Matt said, you're thrombocytopenic or you're on anticoagulation for AFib. So in those cases, I think it would be reasonable to just go with an empiric treatment approach and, and go from there with a caveat that if they do not respond, I will revisit the, the possibility of a biopsy. Well, that's really interesting there, especially the part where you said it uh, can be used to spare people from taking long-term steroids. 
as an endocrinologist, I'd really appreciate that uh, <laughs> by no bounds. But um, I'm going to I'm going to switch gears a little bit and, and say and ask you a question about um, the flavor of these toxicities. Now, I see this often with an immune mediated endocrine toxicities that old, well-known diseases present with what I call a different flavor, different acuity, different age groups, different uh, demographic distributions. Um, is this the same with immune mediated nephritis? Do you same, see a, the same diseases or just a different flavor? I think that the pattern of injury within the kidney is pretty consistent. Like I said, the challenge is establishing whether checkpoint inhibitors are the direct culprit or not, because these, of course, have important implications. Again, do we treat with steroids? Do we stop checkpoint inhibitors? Do we rechallenge? Well, the vast majority of patients have acute tool institution nephritis on the kidney biopsy. There are other patterns, um, like I said. And, and I think that overall, if you're not absolutely certain whether checkpoint inhibitor is the culprit, either because the patient is presenting atypically or the AK is not improving, then, then go ahead and biopsy. But, but I think that once you biopsy and you connect what you find in the biopsy, clinically, it usually makes sense. So I, I will say it's the same flavor. Well, one yeah. of the things I think that I have not, maybe I just haven't noticed, is that these uh, RTAs or even uh, proximal tubular dysfunction occurring in conjunction with tubular interstitial nephritis from other drugs. Have you heard of that? I, I, and maybe it is out there, but this is kind of interesting. And maybe because we see so, it's, we see so many um, interstitial nephritis events with these meds that it just sort of uncovers more, even though they are very rare. Uh, what do you think of that? Is that, you think that's a uh, unique aspect of I, these I, or I, is it, uh, you can see it in other interstitial nephritis? I, I, I was going to, ask you or, or, or comment on that earlier when you mentioned that, because I think that the RTAs are just a phenotype of the tubular interstitial inflammation. And, and, and I think it's not specific for the, for the checkpoints. It's something that even though it's not as yeah, I just haven't ever others, even seen it with another. Have with, with other AINs I have seen, and usually they last longer after the, the AKI resolves. You can have the, the polyuria for, from, from nephrogenic DR, things like that. Uh, if it's affecting distal nephron, but I think that it's more a result of the inflamed tubules rather than, than the T-cell specific effects of checkpoint inhibitors. Well, this is so interesting and very helpful for a, um, a clinical oncologist like myself um, in thinking about diagnosing and then managing these uh, renal dysfunctions. When should we start involving a nephrologist when we're seeing some acute kidney injury for our patients on checkpoint inhibitors? Matt, do you want to start on this one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we love to see these patients and I think it's important to get us involved early to help out with some of these decisions and not, and I think there's, there is sometimes this tendency to say, Hey, let's just, you know, only, you know, consult on the, on the challenging or bad or severe cases. But I think getting an onconephrologist, if your center has one involved earlier on and ensuring that there's nothing else that's being missed. And that's the hardest part is that you know, if we want to diminish steroids in individuals that don't need it, for instance, we can make a determination about whether or not what's the likelihood of this being acute interstitial nephritis versus ATN. We could arrange a biopsy if that is uh, needed, if, if there's a, another glomerular lesion. That... So I think uh, getting a nephrologist involved early is key here. And that's why it's really amazing to see the evolution of uh, joint clinics with nephrology, endocrinology and oncology uh, to take care of these patients. So, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, do we see every single one? I mean, there are patients that have 
cancer get AKI and many of them are on checkpoint inhibitors. I think that's the really the big challenge here. Well, that's very interesting, Matt. Thanks for sharing your insight on that. Now, um, David, you had talked a little bit earlier about um, restarting patients on immunotherapy safely. Um, what is the long-term prognosis of these patients when they once they get these uh, nephrotoxicities? And can they be safely started on immune checkpoint inhibitors once they develop these toxicities? Yeah, so the prognosis overall, I think, is very good, as long as the patient are treated with steroids, right? So going back to, to our multi-center study, for example, uh, of those 60 patients that we have biopsy-proven data, over 80% of the patients had non or mild tubal interstitial fibrosis. About 80% or more also have mild or non-glomerulosclerosis. What do I mean by that? So you don't have scar in the kidney. So you, you're dealing with over 80% of the patients that what they're having on the biopsy is acute changes. So, so things that are reversible. So we, we, we don't like to see uh, interstitial fibrosis or glomerulosclerosis because that usually points to irreversibility. So that's usually incident CKD from now on. But when you see acute changes, just edema and cell infiltration with, without fibrosis, then you have an opportunity, an opportunity that hopefully will be uh, reversible and the patient will recover back to his baseline. The question of rechallenge, uh, it's a very important one. And, and this is an extremely important topic. And oncologists, of course, may be afraid to rechallenge a patient after they have a severe IRAE, like AKI. From the data that we gather, uh, uh, 31 patients, I believe, were rechallenged. Now, of those 31 patients, listen to this: of the 31 patients that were rechallenged, only one developed recurrent AKI that did not recover. Some of them did develop a recurrent AKI, but they responded again to steroids or stopping the medication. But only one out of 31 did not recover. And and of course, this is a very small sample size, and and this needs to be looked into further. But overall, it seems that most patients that are rechallenged do well, and rechallenge should not be a cons- or should not be considered as treat contraindication in these patients. What do you think the reason uh, for that is? I mean, we hypothesized earlier that there's a specific antigen, and you would think that if they had an antigen on a T cell that was reactive to self that any bit of rechallenge with an immune checkpoint inhibitor would just make this even come back with even more intense veracity. Like what's, so is this, uh, is this rethink our theory, our hypothesis of a, of a specific antigen that it's seeing? Well, I think that's why we need to understand the, the mechanism a little bit better and, and what type of T-cell population is the one responsible. I mean, it could be that, that, what really triggered the AKI initially was the concomitant use of PPI. So if the PPI was stopped and then you rechallenged, it's possible that now you don't see another episode of AKI. But we are looking into that. We're gathering more data, the, this consortium uh, group, and, and hopefully we can have a better So PPIs are in the crosshairs, and it has not been a good few <laughs> years for PPIs. <laughs> they have been well, that's a, good, that's a good point. Uh, Tien, can you tell us uh, when you're seeing these patients, are you stopping PPIs? You know, it's it's been at the back of our minds. I don't know that we see it that commonly. Um, and so it's a, it's a bit of a challenge to know, you know, what's true, true and related and what's actually causative. Um, but we will stop some PPIs in, in some cases if the suspicion is high enough. 
Um, but I think it's a good point that sometimes it may not all be truly T cell mediated uh, immune uh, damage. Um, so that's really helpful, David. Thank you. Now, even I'm very scared well, to start I mean, people on PPIs, even though I do any. Nothing I have been very aggressive <laughs> about removing PPIs on individuals. With there's a, a lot of association studies. Granted, it makes a small increase in risk of chronic kidney disease, but it's a small. But it seems that it's a uh, it's been uh, repeated in, in two studies now. And the problem was back in the probably late 90s, early 2000s. When you left the doctor's office, they had a little bowl of PPIs and everyone just went home with them. And so it's just ubiquitously. I mean, and I always look at it as this is a marker of interaction with healthcare, and, and everyone got put on PPI. So I always ask the question, why are you on this? And if they scratch their head like, I'm not sure, then I'm taking it off. Taper it, not just stop it. So PPIs are definitely in the crosshairs. And I would totally do that. Well, that's really good to know. I'm going to keep an eye out for those PPIs on those patient lists. Uh, now, David, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your onconephrology clinic and maybe even share with us a memorable case that you encountered that was really, you know, it, it puts together all the challenges that you you all just as you and Matt just discussed about the diagnosis of these uh, nephrotoxicities. So my oncology clinic here at Duke, we focus on managing patients with, like I said, history of cancer, either undergoing active treatment or cancer survivors that have at any point a kidney complication. The clinic has grown significantly over the past few years, uh, and which has allowed me to, to establish great collaborations uh, across the institution and, and other, other institutions as well. Uh, for example, I work very close with urology and I evaluate patients undergoing nephrectomies uh, for RCCs, um, helping mitigating risk factors for CKD and also helping them establish care, uh, loan care uh, with nephrology. Um, something really cool we're doing lately with the help of pathology, Dr. Howell and Dr. Barisoni, is that we, let's say like Dr. Inman, one of our urologists here, sees a patient and He's concerned that after the nephrectomy, the patient will have significant CKD or he noticed that, that there's some risk factors. He referred the patient to me before the surgery. And this is, this is relatively interesting because it's new. And, and the idea is, <clears throat> let me see you before surgery. If you have risk factors for CKD, uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, or even proteinuria, um, I would definitely want to contact pathology and that nephrectomy, instead of just focus on the, on the tumor tissue, I want to see the medical biopsy of that kidney because that will help me to understand what are the risks of this patient moving forward to have incident CKD. I'll tell you, I have, getting, I have been getting these calls from, from Dr. Howell, phenomenal you know, report of five, six nephrectomies. And he tells me, this patient, you need to see him because he has um, FSGS in a patient with normal creatinine in a patient with no proteinuria and just the only risk factor is obesity. So, so they would benefit long-term that now I'm seeing you in clinic and make sure that your diabetes is controlled, your blood pressure is controlled, that you're on the right medications, HGLT2 inhibitors or, or RAS blockade, et cetera. So that's one component of the clinic. Then, then we have the paraproteinemia clinic. I see patients with multiple myeloma, renal amyloidosis and, and NGRS. Uh, and also we have a once in a while, these wild cases of electrolyte imbalances. I, see, I, I specifically recall a patient with metastatic prostate cancer to the bone, and, and he 
he was referred to me, uh, I think it was Sondar, the, the oncologist, he referred the patient to me for profound hypophosphatemia. And I'm, when I say profound hypophosphatemia, it's a patient with an undetectable low potassium, I mean phosphorus, fatigue, drain, completely tired. And, you know, we see these hypophosphatemia cases in patients with cancer, either because of poor oral intake or because of more commonly drug-induced tubulopathies causing phosphorus wasting. But this was out of the ordinary. And, and yeah. when I checked his urinary phosphorus, it was up to the roof, inappropriately high. So I was intrigued and I decided to send this um, workup for phosphaturic hormones and I sent an <laughs> FGF23 label. I mean, I was an FGF23 expert, so that's the least I can do, right? Go figure, his FGF23 levels were over 800. I mean, it's, it's just off the roof, significantly high. So I ended up diagnosing him with tumor-induced osteomalacia. And, and obviously, he's producing all this FGF23 that's causing all the phosphaturia and then his hypophosphatemia. And Sonder, I mean, love the guy. He, he was able to, to find a medication. It's called uh, burosumab which is a um, monoclonal antibody against FGF23. And we started giving that to the patient. And, 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 and I mean, it was just a fascinating case, perfect physiology of how things are done. So, so yeah, a few cases like that. That's fascinating. Uh, you know, along those lines, being a GU medical oncologist, uh, I certainly see a lot of patients with kidney cancer that require nephrectomies and still need to be treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Should we be thinking about these patients with lower GFRs uh, to begin with at baseline differently as we start them on checkpoint inhibitors? I think the challenge here is that if AKI develops in these patients, I will be less enthusiastic about doing a kidney biopsy in someone with a solitary functional kidney. So, so, so that's the challenge to the beginning. So because their GFR is already low, um, what I would suggest is like what Matt was saying, I would probably proactively recommend avoiding PPIs um, because we know the added risk that these have. Um, I would probably monitor the, the UA frequently, definitely at baseline. And then um, every, every month at least to make sure that, that we capture early any changes on the urine microscopy and in the proteinuria. And then finally, I would probably get them to see nephrology a little bit early if they're not involved already. That's really helpful. And as a follow-up to that, then there are now patients with kidney transplants who receive checkpoint inhibitors for a malignancy, which may or may not be related to their immune suppressed state. Uh, David, we know you also participated recently in a multi-center effort to define outcomes in this transplant population. Can you share what you learned and how we should counsel patients in these settings who are needing to start checkpoint inhibitors? Well, as you know, the transplant patients are usually excluded from clinical trials. So most of what we know on this issue of checkpoint inhibitors in the transplant patient population, it's based on case reports or small case series. Um, for example, we know that rejection rate is extremely high and that it seems to be higher with PD-1 blockade and CTL-4. So this multi-center study you mentioned, which was led by Naoka Murakami and, and Kenar Javeri, uh, they were able to collect data of 69 transplant patients. And we found that the incidence of acute rejection was very high, over 40%, that this rejection happens relatively soon. I believe it was within weeks. We need to stop right soon. there, okay? Um, and just and that, make sure and repeat that one more time for the listeners. What, okay, these are transplant patients. What was the rate? The rejection 40%. rate was 40%. Wow. 
really high. Yeah. Zero. Yes. And, and, and again, it happens relatively soon. And, and if you think that's shocking, look at this. Of those who experienced rejection, 65% lost the allograft. So there's a huge chance of wow. so At the end of the day, it should be a shared decision making between the patient, the oncologist, the nephrologist, family, um, especially in patients with advanced cancer and, and they don't have any other therapies available. So, you know, to, to, what I think, the way I think about it is you need to balance the choices, uh, the patient's choices of losing the allograft, overall survival, and, and quality of life. Sure. No, that's really cool to know. And certainly um, share your thoughts about um, the shared decision-making process and um, the risks and balance um, and um, potential benefits of, of starting these uh, cancer treatments. Um, David, what's your advice to oncologists? What, what can we do better when uh, treating patients with immunotherapy, in particular as we monitor their renal function or their urine studies? I, I think you guys are awesome. <laughs> I, I, I really think that the one thing I would recommend, and this is across medicine specialties, is to always get into the habit of getting urine studies in someone with an elevated creatinine or KI. Uh, whether you're referring them or seeing them for the first time for chronic kidney disease or an AKI, we need urine data. What, is, what are urine studies? So I want to see a complete urinalysis, which in, involves the urine dip and urine microscopy. And then um, I want to see some form of quantification of proteinuria, usually a, a random urine protein to creatinine ratio. Other than that, you know, make sure that you get that and you monitor that regularly because it's going to give you some insights. If you have a baseline, no pyuria, and all of a the second dose of Pembro, you start seeing 40 WBCs in the urine, then that's, that's a red flag and it, and, and it will be very useful. So making sure that the patient is indeed avoiding nephrotoxins, we, we always say it, but, but we need to go the extra mile and make sure that they're actually doing it. That includes NSAIDs and, and PPIs, um, especially if the patient has CKD or if they're receiving combination therapy, you know that increases the risk. I say already getting nephrology involved sooner to help determine whether kidney injury is related to the checkpoint inhibitors or if it's something else, and a kidney biopsy is indicated, we also refer to nephrology to, to assist in the future if you want to re-challenge these patients. Very interesting, David. Thank you so much for um, giving all of us uh, some pointers to think about. Um, Matt, would you like to add to that? You know, that's exactly what I would recommend. I, I think he anything? is just, yeah, I would... <laughs> I would, I would refer my patient to David. That's what I would do. No, <laughs> I agree. We love urine and, but I think, yeah, urinalysis, we want to, want to see, I think a baseline would be great. And then also the drugs. And as I already mentioned, I went on a, you know, few minute tire hit on uh, PPIs. I could do that again, but we probably already heard that enough. <laughs> no, we, uh, we will, sorry, go ahead. I was going to add it. Liquid gold. Like, yeah. Liquid gold. <laughs> you know, I, I certainly appreciate sending my patients to both of you, Matt and David, and appreciate your insights. Um, what should we expect in the future for diagnosis and management of these toxicities? Any biomarkers or novel therapies that uh, you, you guys are aware of in the pipeline? Yeah, I, I think that, that moving forward, we have a key issue to answer, and it's not specific to checkpoint inhibitors, but AKIs in general, and is to have the ability to clinically diagnose or differentiate acute tubular injury from 
um, acute interstitial nephritis. And, and that, that is extremely important. Now, the AKI research community, Matt knows this, uh, he they has been actively looking into serum and urinary biomarkers <laughs> since I was a fellow, which was not too long ago. Um, and, and, you know, that this would be a non-invasive approach to help uh, with this important task. An example of this uh, was published recently was um, looking into urinary uh, interleukin-9, which will be a little bit more specific for T-cell infiltrate, and presumably that if you have a T-cell infiltrate, which is immunoreleated, then it will correlate with AIN. And as, as it turns out, it shows that the higher your IL-9 IL levels, it correlated with biopsy findings of, of AIN. Another marker was uh, TNF-alpha. But again, I don't think we're there yet. I, I think it's, we're desperately needing that. Um, but I think that's where we're heading, to find a non-invasive way to diagnose AIN. And this not, doesn't have to be just a, a, a urine or blood biomarker. It could be imaging. People have talked about PET CTs and um, I don't know. I think that, that hopefully we'll, we'll be able to confidently determine that someone uh, has an immune-related event versus um, uh, just a tubular injury, which is a very different outcome. Very interesting, David. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you both for joining us today and sharing your expert insight into immune-mediated toxicities. This was a very interesting and high-yield discussion, and I hope this will help our audience identify and manage these toxicities better. David, it was really exciting to hear about your clinical operation for onconephrology, certainly an example for those growing a similar practice. And Matt, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your experience and insight, and especially about PPIs. We'll <laughs> thanks again, that. Matt and David. Uh, for our audience, remember to tune in again in two weeks. You can reach us at checkpointnowpodcast at gmail.com. And please remember to follow us on Twitter at checkpointnowmd.